Uh, welcome to this, the, uh, the second in a series of five, looking at the opening chapters of Genesis. Well, last week, Adam took us through Genesis 1. And uh, this is a sort of a, a little summary. Um, we read about the, uh, the f- creation of the heavens and the earth. Uh, and essentially, as Genesis 1 verse 2 puts it, this involves moving from a state of formlessness to form and from emptiness to abundance. So Genesis 1-2 is a bit of a, a programmatic start, as they would call it. Uh, the earth was formless and void. And then days 1-3 to three give form to that formlessness. We get light, sky, land, sea, and vegetation. And then days 4-6 to six fill that emptiness. You get the sun, moon, and stars, the sea creatures and birds, the land creatures and humanity. And you can see how day 1 and 4 day two and five, and day three and six all connect. And then day seven is the day of rest, but not in the sense of slacking off. It's the sense of taking on the rain um, to, to, to keep the creation order going. Um, one thing that we probably do need to just keep in mind um, is that creation, at least as it's dis- dis- uh, described here in Genesis 1, is not creation ex nilo, as in from nothing. There are other verses of scripture that teach that, but Genesis 1 doesn't. Um, Because in these opening verses, there is chaos, these waters, and there is darkness. And then each act of creation involves God establishing order by pushing back uh, that chaos and that darkness. And then each time God does this, What is said to be good is the order that has been achieved over chaos. So by the end of Genesis 1, uh, when God describes everything as very good, this refers to that which has been given form and that that has filled the newly formed spaces and regions. But the chaos waters and the darkness are still there around the edges. Um, as we will see very clearly next week. Um, So these elements of non-order are therefore not strictly part of the the, the what is very good. Now, as evidence for that, jump uh, ahead to the very end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, which we've looked at um, in our Revelation series. So in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more sea. That's that chaos waters. It's gone. And there is no darkness. We're we're, we're explicitly told that the God fills the new heavens and the new earth. Light is everywhere. There is no darkness. So in other words, those elements, the non-order elements, have been fully dealt with at that point. So that's, I think, a demonstration of of where the story has always been heading or where it should be heading. It was always God's plan for the creative processes of forming order out of chaos to continue with humans an integral part of, of it all, as we read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, with the creation of humans in God's image. All right, so moving into Genesis 2, one question that should occur to us is how does Genesis 1 and 2 relate 
clearly Genesis 2 deals with the creation of humans, but didn't we already read about that in Genesis 1? So is Genesis 2 some sort of retelling of the sixth day with minor variations? Uh, some people do think this is how we should interpret the text, but if Genesis 2 is supposed to be read as a, like a fuller version of, of day 6, well, there are some pretty serious uh, sequencing issues. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 5 to 6 says that there were no plants when God created humans, but plants appear on day 3 and humans on day 6 in Genesis 1. And then there's this problem with God creating the animals after creating the man, which again throws out the Genesis 1 sequence. So is there, a, is there an alternative? Well, it could also be seen as a sequel. That is, uh, Genesis 2 is something that happens after Genesis 1. And there's a key word in Genesis 2-4, a word that's translated into English as account. Uh, well, this word pops up throughout Genesis, and it usually indicates that what follows occurs after what came before it. Um, there's a couple of examples here. We read about it in Genesis 6-9 where the pre-flood conditions lead to Noah, and then in Genesis 10.1, where Noah and sons leads to the table of nations. So I don't want to get into the, the Hebrew. There's some more Hebrew coming. Um, so basically, some people have argued that Genesis 2 is more properly seen as a sequel to Genesis 1. It's possible you could argue that the plants that are referred to in Genesis 2.5 are cultivated plants. Uh, so then what's in view in Genesis 2 is the further ordering of terrestrial space. Look, it's not going to be a big deal, but let's not get too hung up on the, the specifics, is probably what I'm trying to say. Uh, then when we get to Genesis 3, uh, it's actually really important to notice that, that the concept of the fall is not found in the Old Testament. All right? Nowhere does anyone point to Adam as the origin of human sin or death in the Old Testament. Uh, it, true, Paul seems to be making this sort of point in, in Romans 5, um, but I don't think we have the time to really deal with what's going on there at the moment. Maybe our next sermon series, if uh, um, Di's watching in Israel, our next sermon series should look at the book of Romans. <laughs> uh, but we don't get anything like the theology of original sin until Augustine in the 5th century AD. Um, so we really need to be uh, careful that we don't interpret this passage in a way that sort of presupposes some of those later paradigms. Uh, instead, we need to read the text uh, in its original historical and cultural context. So let's get into the text. Forming the man. This is the account, that's that word, uh, that special Hebrew word. Um, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. All right, so the use of the word dust here is, is extremely interesting. The text doesn't say clay. 
uh, which is definitely a substance that you can use to shape uh, into something, like a craftsman shaping a pot or something. The text says dust. So what does dust indicate? Well, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but Genesis 3.19 provides us with an interpretive clue. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So these verses come in the context of the curses that follow Adam and Eve's act of obedience, uh, disobedience, and we'll get to this later. It's often taken uh, to mean that death was introduced at that point, that humans were immortal before the fall and then afterwards they're not. Um, but if we read that Genesis 3 closely, it's the ground that is cursed, not humans. So this dust, well, it seems to be an imagery that suggests mortality. And, and you've got to put yourself into a hot, dry climate. Um, the cultural context of what happens to dead bodies in a climate like that, well, you basically take the dead body, you put it into the family tomb on a slab, and then you come back a year later and the body has deteriorated into bones and desiccated flesh. It really looks like the body has returned to dust. Um, Another piece of evidence that shows that I think humans were originally mortal, even in Genesis 1 and 2, um, is that it was only, um, uh, where did I get to? The tree of life. This, this tree of life. God provided Adam and Eve with a means of something that's going to keep them living. So it was only continued eating from this tree that would prevent Adam and Eve from dying. All right, we'll find out when they get kicked out. It's so that they don't keep reaching out and eating from the tree of life. They could potentially live forever, even after the fall. Um, but God says no, and we get the exile from the garden, and so then they die. But the potential was always there, even in Genesis 1 and 2. So... This might be a bit of a shock to some of you, but basically this is an indication that not all aspects of non-order have been dealt with yet. Well, you know, there was the, the chaos, the darkness, well, there's also death. And again, it's when we look at the end of the story, Revelation 20 this time, when, when we see that death itself dies, um, and so that once you get to Revelations 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more crying or pain. There is no more death. And humans, once again, have access to the tree of life. So, reading on. There we go. Forming the garden. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping a few verses. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
Well, this passage parallels Genesis 1 uh, in that the man is given a role as a steward tending the garden. And it's important to notice that work exists before the curses. Human work was always part of the system. Humans were always meant to be God's stewards on earth, working to maintain and maybe even extend God's good order. Uh, but note the wording of the prohibition, you will certainly die. Um, versions sort of translate this differently and I'm not getting into the Hebrew again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Um, but the point is they didn't die at the moment they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and I actually think you can't even say that they died spiritually um, because Genesis 3:22 makes it clear that the fruit of the tree of life would still provide immortality. No, I think it's that Adam and Eve will certainly die because the punishment or the consequences of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is banishment from the garden. And then once they can't eat from the tree of life, their eventual death is certain. All right, moving on, forming the animals. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But, no, uh, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. All right, did you notice the slate of hand uh, to get around the sequencing issue here? Uh, the NIV, I think this is what it is, says the Lord God had formed all the wild animals and stuff, uh, as if the, the forming had, had happened beforehand. But that isn't the tense in the verbs in the Hebrew. It's just directly formed. He, he forms them right then and there. Um, and then... According to my understanding of ancient Near Eastern culture, something about naming things implies a hierarchy. So by the, uh, the man naming the animals, it's showing that you know, they are below him in, in this sort of hierarchy. Uh, they are part of the creation that he is now stewarding, managing, and the, giving them a name is like the first thing. So all of this uh, really echoes what we read about last week in Genesis 1, that humans are given stewardship over God's good creation. All right. But the man's still alone, right? So let's read on. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, we are going to get to a Hebrew word in a minute. Um, note that uh, Adam here says, bone of my bone, uh, bones, flesh of my flesh. So it does actually appear that there's more than just a bone that is involved in this process. Um, and it's when you examine the Hebrew word that's here translated as rib uh, that we discover something extremely interesting. 
uh, in all of the other 40 occurrences of this word in the Old Testament. The word is not an anatomical term for a bone found in the chest. So, let me quote from someone uh, who has studied Hebrew. I'll read it out, even if you can't see the words up there. Uh, outside of Genesis 2, with the exception of 2 Samuel 16, 13, referring to the other side of the hill, the word is only used architecturally in the tabernacle temple passages. It can refer to planks or beams in these passages, but more often it refers to one side or the other. Typically when there are two sides, rings along two sides of the ark, rooms on two sides of the temple, the north or south side, etc. On the basis of Adam's statement, combined with these data on usage, we would have to conclude that God took one of Adam's sides, likely meaning he cut Adam in half and from one side built the woman. Shocked silence, murmur, murmur, murmur. Um, Walton, this is where, who I quoted uh, from, goes on to argue that the deep sleep that's referred to here is not to be taken as referring to the sleep induced by anesthesia before what would have been extremely radical surgery. <laughs> After all, nothing like that existed in the historical cultural context. You know, what do we know? They had to bite on a bit of wood. Maybe they got drunk first, you know. There was no such thing as an anaesthetic that's going to knock you out. In the, and I, look, I'm, I'm the first to admit, this is one of these points in my sermon where I'm, I was researching stuff and I'm like, wow, I've never heard that before. I just assume, of course, they're talking about anaesthetic, knocking him out, taking a rib out, making the, the woman. It's like, oh, no, it's, it's not that. What would be more uh, fitting with the culture and context is that Adam has entered some sort of visionary trance-like state so that the whole being cut in two and the forming of the woman is essentially something that Adam is seeing in a vision. And then think about how remarkably egalitarian this passage is. The woman is literally his other half. So, the man and woman form two equal halves of a whole, and then that whole is something that is restored in the union of marriage. The text says it. The two will become one flesh. It's not like, oh, suddenly Adam's rib is, is reinserted to make a whole. It's like, no, we're talking about two halves. I uh, just blew my mind, blew my mind. Um, the only possible hint of any hierarchy that we get here is that the man names her woman uh, in this poetic outburst. Uh, but even, I think, at this point, the, the emphasis of, of Adam's poetic utterance is equivalence. Um, and then it's actually, I think, significant that Adam names her Eve after the curses, which we will get to. Um, let me just read it because it's apt for the day. Um, Genesis 3.20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So there we go. It, the first mother appropriate for Mother's Day. Okay. And that's all I'm going to say about Mother's Day. Sorry, Mum. <laughs> She's watching. <laughs> 
All right, so we've made it to Genesis 3. Uh, As I said earlier, we tend to think of this passage as the fall. But perhaps it would be better to think in terms of order. God's creative acts to this point have been to form and then to fill non-order, thereby bringing order out of chaos. But by taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see humans taking matters into their own hands. And as a result, as we will quickly see in the chapters that follow, you get disorder. So look, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. I'm going to just skim through it and address some uh, p- potentially puzzling features. So firstly, who or what is the serpent? Um, certainly by Revelation 20 verse 2, the serpent has been identified as the devil, also known as Satan the accuser. But in the Old Testament itself, there is no suggestion that the serpent is Satan. Now, it's hard to get into it, but, you know, the Old Testament, it's, it's been written over a long period of time. At the start, there's not really any references to Satan. Satan is a much more of a later concept. You can see that very clearly when you compare 1 and 2 Samuel with 1 and 2 Chronicles, where in 1 and 2 Samuel it says things like, and the Lord sent an evil spirit to Saul. And then in 1 and 2 Chronicles it says, Satan sent the Uh, the the evil spirit on Saul. So it's a developing concept um, and yet at no point through this development does anyone say, oh, and by the way, Satan was there in the garden, that was the serpent, in in terms of the Old Testament. Uh, So what would someone in this uh, historical and cultural context, what would they have thought about this serpent? Well, without getting into the details, um, you can look in the John Walton book that we've we've mentioned already and suggested as as possible reading uh, for the details, but basically this serpent would have been seen as a chaos creature uh, from the realm of non-order, right? So from something that's still outside the bounds of the order that God has created. And then this chaos creature wants to reverse the order that God has brought about. The, The serpent is therefore promoting disorder. All right. Second question, what's so wrong about knowing good and evil? All right, you'd think that if there's this tree here, it says here, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil if you eat it. I would like to know, surely, what is the good, what is evil, right? So what's the problem? Well, it seems like by the, the imagery of the passage is saying that by eating from this tree, Adam and Eve are choosing to make themselves the center of order and the source of wisdom. So, they're not the one that originally made order out of chaos. They are, in fact, a key part of that order uh, with an important function to continue what God has started through tending God's good world. But that doesn't give them the ability to decide what is good and what is evil on their own. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes. And the result is disorder. All right, well, what's with the curses? Well, I think this passage, and we'll see some of this um, in some of the other uh, chapters in this first section of Genesis, um, the the passage has has what's known as an etiological function. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that word right. Uh, It's basically explaining how we get to the way things are now. 
Um, a good example uh, is the Just So stories by Rudyard Kipling, you know, like how the elephant got his trunk. Uh, he had a small nose and then I think a crocodile pulls it and makes it big. So it's not like they were saying that that's really what happened, but it's like an explanation for something that is, that is true now. So how did it come to that point? So this passage is doing some of that as well. Um, we'll see that again in, in Genesis 11, uh, me in two weeks' time, looking at the creation of languages. Anyway, it's, it's important to note that humans are not cursed by God. Uh, the creation of humans was seen uh, by God as very good back in chapter 1, um, where humans were made in the image of God. And Adam and Eve's disobedience does not remove that image. It's referred to in later passages uh, in Genesis 1 through to 11. Um, it's the serpent who is cursed. And the ground is cursed, not humans. And then, interestingly, the curse on the ground is, is ameliorated somewhat in Genesis 8.21. God takes back some of that curse. And then the first thing that Noah does is build a vineyard, make some wine, get drunk, but I'll leave that passage to Adam to discuss. <clears throat> All right, so in the curses, there are some structural things going on. Um, God addresses the man who blames the woman, who in turn blames the serpent, and then the divinely imposed consequences are handed down in reverse order. So firstly, the serpent. Well, there's a physical con consequence. Apparently, the serpent then has to crawl on its belly and eat dust. Dust is that mortal mortality word again. Um, but perhaps more importantly, there's this social consequence. Uh, because the serpent and the woman interacted during the act of sinning, the relationship between them will be affected. Specifically, it's the woman's offspring who's going to kill the serpent, and the serpent will injure the woman's offspring. So this is this etiological function coming in. It's probably going, trying to explain why um, serpents are so ferocious towards humans. All right, snakes going out and jumping at us and trying to, trying to bite us. Um, but humans can still overpower them. It's like, you know, step on it. Great. Although, don't do that here in Australia. Um, it's, it's, I think, pretty unlikely that the original author ever intended that this was to refer to Jesus' victory over Satan on the cross, but we can certainly see an analogy. Okay, so that's the serpent. Um, this is a completely different word, and this is a word that does refer to the actual birthing process. But this other word for pain is also used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now, it comes up in Genesis 6, verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had... labor pains is he it's emotional pain it's grief it's not physical pain so a better translation of this troublesome verse i think we can move to another slide potentially <clears throat> uh, 
Okay. There we go. Um, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow and hardship you shall bring forth children. Now, there's still, how do we deal with that, your sorrow and conception? That, that and is a bit of a tr complicated thing. And, you know, again, the linguistics gets, gets, gets messy. But basically, the second half of this verse helps to explain the first half. And, and really, what it's saying is raising children is going to be far more difficult than it would have been. Raising children. Not the birthing process, it's the raising children. Now, maybe, maybe God is saying something about making conception more difficult as well. Interestingly, we see a lot of this start happening in Genesis. We have women that are having trouble getting pregnant, Sarah. And, and then think of the, 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 the problems they have once they do have kids. All right? There is a lot of emotional distress when you look at the way your kids are fighting and stuff. So... What we're seeing here is then acted out in the rest of Genesis, and it's got nothing to do with how painful labor is. All right, then, because the woman and the man also interacted during the act of sinning, the, the relationship between them will also be affected. So what was a very egalitarian relationship before this point becomes a struggle for dominance with the man winning out over the woman. Uh, in short, this can be seen as the onset of patriarchy. Now, I came across a fascinating article while researching for this sermon. And then here is a key quote from Ian Proven, uh, an Old Testament Hebrew scholar, about this consequence. Did I put this on here? Yes, I did. Sorry, it's tiny. Um, men and women were created to work in partnership, according to Genesis 1, 27 to 28, and 2, 20 to 23, ruling jointly over the earth, and in that context, building their families. It seems likely, then, that the man is envisaged in Genesis 3:16 as relating to the woman as if she were part of the creation order, which humans were given uh, domin dom dominion, rather than co-ruler over creation along with the man. Intended for partnership, the human pair will in fact find themselves embroiled in a struggle for dominance, as they themselves struggle for dominance over the earth. This is in part why family life will be more painful for the woman than it would have been for the human pair had not um, they turned away from God. Dysfunction marks not only the human relationship with the environment outside the home, it also marks the human relationships within the home. And then the remainder of the book of Genesis powerly, powerfully illustrates this dysfunction and the sorrow that it brings. Now, surely, if we were trying to reverse the effects of human disorder, then we men must be careful not to fall into this trap. Uh, men should never dominate their wives. Genesis 3.16 is not telling it's not, it's not God telling the man to boss the woman around. God is saying that because though the, these two have chosen to make themselves the centre of order and the source of wisdom, they are going to end up in a war of the sexes. Uh, complementarian theology is based on the consequences of the coming of disorder. It's not part of God's very good ordered world. 
Now, much, much abuse has been perpetrated on women by men thinking they are being obedient to the scripture where wives are told to submit to their husbands because the logic is as follows. To submit means to obey. Therefore, the woman must obey her husband despite how she may feel about it. But this is wrong and merely perpetuates the, the effects of human disorder. Instead, those passages concerning submission actually involve mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. And anyway, submission does not mean obedience. They are two completely different words in the original Greek. If, God had, sorry, if Paul had meant obey, he would have said it. He uses the word later on when he says, children, obey your parents. Um, and then if that isn't enough for you, Paul goes on to address the men by saying, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, husbands are supposed to love their wives with a self-sacrificing love, which was quite the countercultural statement at the time. So if we men were to treat our wives as equals with mutual submission, then that particular consequence of human disorder would be reversed. <clears throat> All right, finally, on to the man. Um, there is a clear and deliberate parallel with the woman. So if raising children is going to be far more difficult for women, then providing for one's family is going to be more difficult for the man or for men. Now, partly this is explained in the narrative in that these two are about to be exiled from a beautiful garden into a more barren landscape where they will have to live hand to mouth. But uh, here's another quote from Ian Proven that explains it really well. Uh, and those red bits are actually Hebrew, so if you want to read the original, you know, you've got to wade through Hebrew as well. Anyway, uh, this is the man's fate, to match the woman woman's. He knows sorrow as she does, and in this case the noun certainly refers to challenging, painful economic circumstances, as the man is locked in a struggle with the land, hoping through painful toil to grow sufficient green plants in the midst of thorns and thistles to survive. There was work to be done in the field before the events of Genesis 3 transpired, just as there was work to be done in the home. The woman's sorrow is said to greatly increase, not to begin. Human beings were created to rule and subdue the earth and to serve the garden and keep it in an environment in which we are probably meant to imagine there were already thorns and thistles. Um, but much harder work is now required in both spheres as the human relationship with God and with the rest of creation is fractured. The parallels, when you see the same Greek, uh, sorry, Hebrew words appearing in the woman um, consequences and in the man's consequences, it really helps to show how, this, how it all fits together. And then, as I said, we see these consequences at work in the rest of Genesis and, in fact, in the rest of the Old Testament. All right, but what about in our day and age uh, where the mod cons of modern life mean that if we're hungry, we just go to the fridge and get something to eat? What's so hard about that? Um, well, in order to stock the fridge, we need money. And then in order to get money, we, we have to work. Uh, so for us living in the 21st century, I don't think that this passage is about the difficulty of work. Uh, what it means for us is that we can get caught up in our work. We can get dominated by it. Um, in terms of gender roles, women are dominated by men and men are dominated by work. But then again, work can be a, become a problem for women and women can also dominate men. It's the imbalance 
that's the problem in either direction. Again, if we're going to reverse the consequences of human disorder instead of blithely going along with it, we need to get our priorities right. We should never put our work before family. Of course, it can be a delicate balance. Some jobs require long hours, but we should see work for what it is, uh, as a source of income and one would hope enjoyment, but not an obsession that blinds us to what is so much more important in the long run. And so the end result of all this is we live in a world with non-order, order, and disorder. God has brought order out of chaos, but there are still aspects of non-order present. There's chaos and darkness and even death itself. And then humans, through the exercise of free will, bring disorder that greatly impacts social relationships. So to finish up, I just wanted to see uh, a little bit about how this fits into uh, the, the biblical narrative as a whole. So God's plan of renewal. Firstly, God forms order out of chaos. And humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Humans are supposed to be God's representatives, continuing the process of ordering creation by caring for God's ordered creation but there are still aspects of non-order present. The end result of this is very good, but it's not perfect. There's still work to be done. And there's still something to aim for. Uh, we've got to get rid of the remaining aspects of non-order somehow. Well, before things get better, things get worse. Human disobedience leads to disorder. Humans choose to make themselves the center of order. They want to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And it's just, it doesn't work. The result is disorder. And we will see a lot more of that over the next two weeks. Um, then God's renewal project is first prefigured, predicted, and then inaugurated. I'm sort of trying to explain... Old Testament where you see um, uh, covenants and things, prophecies that sort of point forward to where things are going. The covenant with Abraham, the nation of Israel, point to God's plan to bring blessing to all nations. The Old Testament prophets look forward to a time when God will personally act to renew humanity. And then Jesus comes, announcing God's kingdom a renewal of humanity that begins its work here and now in the midst of the mix of order, non-order and disorder that is everyday life. This renewal project is officially inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Jesus when Jesus passes through death to become the first of a renewed humanity. And then from Pentecost onwards, the renewal project is directed and empowered by God's Holy Spirit the effects of human disorder are mitigated through community and equality. The effects of non-order are, to a certain extent, mitigated through healings and deliverance. But we're still in this sort of time between the times, the, the now and the not yet, as it's called. And there are still natural disasters. And we can still get sick. And we still die. So the ultimate goal Ultimately, all non-order will be dealt with. Satan and death, gone. And a renewed humanity will be raised to new life in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you.